Happy New Year, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. All right, here we are, 2021. You made it. This is the first episode of the new year. Uh, How did you do last year? Did you make it through to the end? Well, if you're, I guess if you're listening, then you made it to the end. You're still here. So bravo, gold sticker on your forehead. And I suspect that maybe you accomplished more than you thought you would in spite of all of the circumstances. Um, So if you haven't done it, I hope you'll do an end of year review for your own life Take note of all of the blessings, all of the good things that did happen in spite of the circumstances. And I was listening to Emily P. Freeman's, uh, I don't know if you listen to her, The Next Right Thing. And she was talking about things that she made, including confessions, memories. Uh, and she had, she had this beautiful list of things that she made um, when we think so often in terms of material things. And it got me thinking of maybe, maybe we accomplished more than we thought we did in 2020. And I know from, for me personally, that I had some of the best conversations with my kids and even my husband last year, um, deep conversations that I probably would not have had if some of those other things hadn't been stripped away. So maybe those were some things that really weren't benefiting me or my family or our lifestyle the way I thought that they were. And so now I have an opportunity to determine whether or not I want those things to be a part of my life in the future, in 2021 or in 2022. So here we are, New Year. I already have a couple of episodes uh, recorded, got some future guests coming up, and I have I have some goals for the podcast. Last year, my goal for the podcast was to record 12 episodes and far exceeded that with more than more than 30 episodes last year. Uh, but I have so I have some goals for this year, including I have a, a new setup I'm working on just recording wise. Um, you won't be able to see that, but maybe you'll be able to hear the improvement as we go. And I have some goals for guests that I want to have on the podcast. Uh, I don't want to say who it is, but then maybe you're listening and you can help me get connected. So I really want to have Dr. Nina Gunter on the podcast. And I'm I'm not really quite sure where to start with that. So praying, praying through all of that. Uh, I'd like to have, I'd like to get one or two international guests this coming year from, uh, I'm thinking specifically Nazarene women clergy from other countries and have them on the podcast. So if you have some connections, send me a DM and help me get connected that way. You know, I mean, even though we're a global society and people can read my, um, whatever profile, just saying I'm a Nazarene pastor doesn't necessarily be like, Oh, awesome. I want to come on your show. Uh, you know, as much as they're like, who are you? So connection, connections, connections, connections. I'm all about connections and networking. In this episode, my friend John Hall is on the podcast and we talk about self-care and counseling. And there's, there's a lot of good stuff. When we, we dig into his story a little bit, we share back and forth about our own self-care. And here, one of the things that 
we get talking about is this idea of most people wait too long to get counseling. And so then you're in crisis mode and you spend the first three months doing crisis intervention rather than therapy. So some tips for you. If you have said to yourself at all in the last three months, maybe I should see a counselor. The answer to that question is yes. If it has crossed your mind, there is something going on that you need to deal with. If you find that you are chronically angry, yelling at your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, your board members, uh, you probably need to see a counselor. If you find that you're crying all of the time, I know some of you are just sensitive people, so you'll have to do your own gauging on that, but you probably need to see a counselor. If you are laying there on Sunday morning and the alarm clock goes off and you are begging God not to make you go to work today and you're the pastor, you definitely need to see a counselor, all right? Let's let's make 20 one of our goals for 2021 to drop the ego a little bit and to become the people, the ministers that God wants us to be, has created us to be. And sometimes that means getting real with ourselves and saying, this isn't going to work. We're not going to just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make it happen. We need some help. And so I encourage you to listen to this episode all the way to the end. Hear some of the good stuff that's really in here. Uh, And then if that's you, uh, start looking for a counselor now. Most insurance companies will do, uh, it's like a $30 copay now. They've made some changes uh, in insurances and there's uh, sliding scales. Um, There are resources out there. So, and if you need resources and you're not sure where to start, contact me, give John Hall a call and we'll help you get connected. So. Enjoy the first episode of the new year. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Welcome to the podcast. You made it. Yeah, I'm here. You finished your exams? Um, no exams. I'm actually lucky enough to uh, not have to worry about that part. Um, I'm actually into the uh, full-time internships now, um, mm-hmm. taking on my own caseload and all that kind of stuff. I've satisfied all the academic requirements now. No more like intense book work. So Right. Just have to work through the internships and then I graduate in May. Oh, wow. So you have like your own cases and then, or do you, like, how does that, so how does that work? Do you have your own like clients? Yeah. Working on building um my own caseload and kind of uh, actually fell into a kind of a bittersweet to it, but it works out well because I have to get a certain amount of hours for my internship requirements. Right. Um, and one of the clinicians that um, I'm working with the private practice is going on maternity leave. So she uh-huh. had several clients that wanted to maintain regular counseling sessions while she's gone. Um, and so I've kind of come in mid story kind of in their therapeutic process. Um, right. so there's a lot to catch up on, but 
it also allows me then to have a lot of clientele as well for uh, getting all the hours necessary. So, right. Normally, I would start with what you're doing now. So I don't know. I, I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna just kind of backtrack. We'll see what happens. I'm gonna move these questions kind of all over the place from how like I normally do, because I don't want to just like dive like go way deep in like the first five minutes. Uh, so let's just talk about your call. I need. I know you grew up in the church. Mm-hmm. Yep, you're a PK. Yep. I am a PK. I turned out all right. <laughs> I feel yep. better now, John. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you did you know you had a call to the ministry early on then, or was it like how early did you know you had a call to ministry? You know, really, um, there kind of became like a keen sense of awareness of a call to ministry towards the latter end of high school. But I think I was fairly resistant to that, not necessarily because of anything negative. I had a great experience um, growing up as a pastor's kid. And, you know, so there was no like negative connotation to ministry and things like that. I just didn't know um, what that would look like for me. And um, my mind kind of told me too, like, you know, struggled with the, the fact that, you know, the, you know, it would be the track that everybody expects me to take, follow in dad's footsteps and kind of the lineage of ministry on my mom's side. And, you know, so there, and that was never an implied or felt pressure, uh, more of an kind of internalized conversation with myself about it. So there's kind of a resistance to it, you know, for things like that. I don't know, the idea of, you know, doing other things, pursuing other things, rather than just the easy route of ministry, you know? It's kind of the uh, the adage of the longer you resist, it persists. And it just wouldn't go away, you know, this idea of ministry. And it was, it was vague, um, so I didn't really know what it would look like, um, whether that was kind of the main pastoral track or youth ministry and children's ministry and all that kind of stuff. So it was just this vague sense of knowing that there was some type of call and even when I um, started college, I, I really didn't know what that even looked like yet. So when you enrolled in college, did you, did you go to Olivet? I did go to Olivet, yeah. That was that seemed like that would be the logical thing, but you know, you never know. <laughs> right, right. So when you enrolled, did you enroll then just in like generic pastoral studies or did you do youth ministry? Yeah, at, when I started at Olivet, they still had the option just to major in religion. And so that's what I had started doing uh, my freshman and sophomore year. And then they had kind of um, rewritten the tracks or reformatted the tracks going into ministry. And then you had to actually select a uh, pastoral track. And that really kind of put me in a position where all of a sudden, you know, going into my junior year, they said, okay, you have to pick. And for a lot of individuals, that was easy. <laughs> but for myself, I didn't know what that looked like yet. I didn't think I had to worry about it yet. So I chose the youth ministry track. I felt good about it. I had peace about it. Um, you know, maybe was able to arrive at peace a little easier, considering, you know, kind of all the fringe benefits as well <laughs> of youth ministry. Right. Um, and so that's, that's the path I chose. And that's what I graduated with um, was my bachelor's in youth ministry. How long did you serve as a youth as a youth pastor before you became a lead pastor? Here, I think uh, I was only a youth pastor um, for maybe about three years or so. 
Um, I served as a youth pastor um, at Hersher Christian Church um, outside of Bourbonnais while my um, wife at the time was finishing up her degree at Olivet. I served there. And then uh, when both of us were graduated at that point, then we moved to Saginaw Valley, First Church of the Nazarene there in Saginaw. Well, I didn't realize you were. I didn't realize yeah. you were saying. So I was there for a, uh, for a brief time before then getting a uh, phone call from Dr. Steve Anthony um, asking me if, um, you know, there was any interest in interviewing at what was then Union Lake Church of the Nazarene, now Commerce. Yeah, I forgot they went through that name change. Yeah. Because Union Lake doesn't exist anymore. That's right. Well, it, it does as a lake, but that's like, it. Yeah, but the city doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so I'm curious, when you were at Olivet, when you were in your college years and you were going through youth ministry, at that time, did you sense any interest in the counseling role as well? Or is, is that completely a new thing? Oh, yeah. No, I had I had no desire. Like, counseling wasn't even on the radar at all. Like, no measurable degree at all. Youth ministry and whatever that looked like. And, you know, and I had really, you know, even through college and after college, you know, I had no, really no exposure to counseling or the field of counseling or anything like that. Okay, so you ended up at Commerce. How long were you there altogether at Commerce? Yeah, just about nine years. So you were at Commerce, and I want to talk about how I know, because I know some of your story. So I'm trying to think about how, how, how do I lead you here? Um, you had your own personal journey through counseling. And I know you've talked about it was that through that personal journey that kind of led you to pursuing this transition of moving out of the lead pastor role mm -hmm. and then moving into becoming a count, doing ministry through counseling. So you just talk a little bit, how did you end up in that place where you were going through this personal journey and then talk about some of the things that you learned um, as you went through this counseling and then kind of how it, how that, this idea of transitioning in ministry then was kind of birthed in you. Yeah. yeah, you'll have to remind me of those. Well, counseling, kind of that that whole journey for me began when my first marriage really um, began to dissolve um, and ultimately ended in divorce. And so I started that counseling journey early in the year. It was um, right around June 2015. And I didn't even know, like, like I said, I had no real framework of the therapeutic process and how that worked. Um, I had made referrals for individuals to counselors that I knew and um, knew that they were, they were trustworthy and they were, you know, they were a credible, reputable counselor, but never really had been in that arena myself. And so when I began that process, I did not know or anticipate that, you know, that journey for me was going to be over a year long. And going into it, it was, it was a little rough, you know, I, being in a, in a, in a pastoral context and being an ordained elder in the church, you know, I really felt like I should be able to just kind of pull myself up by the bootstraps and handle it and just deal with it and it was for it was really the first time that I began to realize kind of the void between 
theology and psychology and yeah. kind of counseling, you know, and, and theologically, I knew, you know, I, I knew the answers and I, and I kind of knew what that process looked like. I knew where to look in scripture and how to apply, you know, those different principles of scripture to my situation and things like that. But as far as the, the emotional, you know, mental health side of things, there were just things going on internally that I just couldn't reconcile. And I didn't know how to arrive at that reconciliation. I didn't know the thought process to take. I didn't know the approach to get myself from point A to point B. And that's, that's really what the um, kind of the, the counseling journey and the therapy process opened up for me um, is this whole other just education, really, this whole other educating side of mental health care and just the emotional side of things. And, and, and it really taught me that, you know, you know, dive into this further, um, but, you know, how Christ and counseling don't have to be autonomous things from each right. other, but can really be conjoined, you know, as, as a real holistic view in the life of a believer, um, in the life of anybody. And I found, you know, the way it just brings things together and brings clarity to things, both psychologically and theologically, um, you know, it's been a real learning process for me. And it was, it was, it's tremendous, you know, the journey that I took on that. So, right. I do feel like it is part of the holistic, especially if we're going to have a holistic approach to our faith and, you know, being Wesleyan in our tradition mm -hmm. and, um, that's an area that we have neglected so much and we begin to see it affect the the body and we have this these dysfunctions that are just never they're never addressed you know and they're never mm -hmm. really healed and they're never made whole because yeah, yeah. we we kind of put blinders on and ignore that that it's a reality and i do want to talk about self-care for pastors at some point but um so as you went through this journey for of counseling, at what point did at what point did you start to recognize that that your ministry needed to make a shift, or like that you felt God was calling you to make make a shift in your ministry and your focus and your approach? Because that's how do I say this? It's a big shift. I think that we have done a disservice to the body by putting so much emphasis on. Well, you're not really a minister unless you're a lead pastor. And uh, I haven't felt that at all. <laughs> uh, now go back and listen to Dr. Kitsko's episode. <laughs> where he talks about the office of pastor. Collectively, right. all, collectively we all make up the, the office of pastor. Um, right, right. Jess talks about that part uh, and, and how significant it is that we really make each other stronger when we lean into those, those giftings and some of those maybe unique areas of ministry, such mm -hmm. as counseling. So um, maybe just talk about that, how, how you recognize it, how you had to wrestle with it. Uh, no, there's definitely a, a season of wrestling. Even while I was in counseling, um, during that whole time and for a fairly long time after counseling, um, after I was moved on from that season, I still didn't have a real sense of um, call into that field yet to make that transition. 
and and it kind of it kind of developed in kind of a piecemeal way um, because on the latter end of my counseling experience, I had over the course of several several months, kind of sequentially, had then journeyed the process of um, you know I had journeyed the process of kind of broken marriages with six other individuals that were in a ministry context. Wow. And that, um, it was almost like cathartic for me to, cause I continued to learn each time I shared my experiences with them. And so, you know, so there was a real, there was a real piece of that that was encouraging to me and continued to help me, um, down a road of healing. Um, but each time I was journeying this process, with a new individual, it was also burdening as well, uh, mm-hmm. because I realized just how limited I was in my ability to help them. Right. And knowing that they were, knowing that they were in such a broken place, and knowing, for the most part, you know, with a few different variables involved, but for the most part, it could really empathize and relate to their emotional place, you know, I would have to give them the disclaimer of, you know, I can share my experiences with you. I can share maybe some of the, you know, different coping strategies and mechanisms that kind of learned to stay in the moment and not allow myself to get too far, you know, down rabbit trails and negative thought processes and things like that. But, you know, I told them it's just so far outside of my wheelhouse. I don't know how much I can actually be of assistance, you know, and now the hindsight, you know, kind of now being educated in the field of counseling and seeing behind the curtain, I couldn't have even have told anybody what type of therapeutic approach my counselor was using with me as an individual, you know, so my experiences and the things that I shared with other individuals may have been completely useless for them because it's just not where they're at. And it may not have been the approach that they even needed. So, you know, so I just kept recognizing how limited I was and and I kept myself fairly limited, you know, because I just, I wasn't going to operate outside my wheelhouse and act like I knew how to help them. That And that's kind of where like an unsettledness began in my own spirit. Every single time I was engaging and encountering another broken marriage, it was just, I I kept finding myself leaving more and more dissatisfied with my ability to really not necessarily speak into their situation, but to, you know, know how to effectively walk that journey with them. Right. Um, So that's kind of when that, I guess that call started. And so, you know, fast forward, then I'm remarried to Julie and, you know, things are going well, you know, and I've kind of talked about the the fact that I kept encountering these situations and she, you know, she would kind of drop here and there. Well, maybe you need to think about the counseling field. And I was like, nah, you know, like I just finished up. A, uh, a master's degree through all of that. I was like, I'm done with school. Like, I don't want to go back. I, and so I began wrestling with that. And it was just like, once, once that seed was planted and like there was some type of little firming 
of maybe what should be done. You know, it was just like, I couldn't get it out of my brain. Kind of that thing again, the more you resist, it persists, you know, and, and just began to get more and more unsettled. And then um, I remember specifically, and it's odd, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just stubborn enough that I have to have these like burning bush moments in my life, really like grabbing me by the collar. It was the summer, when was that now? 2017. I was at my office at the church. And for whatever reason that day, I was just really, really torn about this idea of counseling um, and what that looks like as a new expression of ministry. And I kind of, you know, maybe I was presumptuous about how the Lord would choose to move. But, you know, I said, you know, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, if this is the direction I need to go, like, I really need something concrete or else I'm not doing it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm, I'm happy. And I tell you, I loved, I loved serving at commerce Nazarene. It was, yeah, that could be a whole nother story in itself about, you know, how they journeyed with me through the whole thing. That was amazing. But uh, so I was, you know, in my office really wrestling with the Lord about it. And then there was a knock on my office door and I opened the door and it was this gentleman um, who was just really in a down and out, down on his luck situation, was knee in need of a drive, uh, in need of a ride all the way to Owasso. You know, that's not like just a trip around the corner from commerce. Right. You know, it was like an hour <laughs> away. So, you know, my initial thought is, all right, what appointment, you know, do I have that I can't drive to Owasso? <laughs> as I was kind of asking him the details of what was going on and his timeline about needing to be in Owasso, he made the offhand remark that just was like a lightning strike. He, you know, he said, I could just really use a ride and some counsel. Like verbatim, that's what he said. And I was like, all right, Lord, I, I guess we're going to do counseling and I'm going to drive him to Owasso today. And I drove him to Owasso. And when I dropped him off, my first phone call was to my wife, Julie. She was working. And I told her um, what had just happened. And I said, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to get a counseling degree. I know without a doubt that's what needs to happen. Yeah. And so that set that trajectory. Is that well, does that satisfy that that portion of it? Because there's more, <laughs> then, you know. Then that, you know, what is counseling and ministry going to look like, you know, and there kind of has, you know, a whole purpose within that too. So yeah, share that you're wrestling with, okay, how does those two things work together? And, and I'm sure, you know, maybe, maybe not, but I'm going to guess that you probably had to wrestle with that whole stepping away from this version of ministry. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it was you know, it was what I knew. It was what I went to school for. It was, it was the essence of my call to preach. And, um, and I don't, I wouldn't say that that has, has gone away, but, you know, I also, the Lord offers a lot of grace when we go through seasons of life, just says, it's, oh, it's okay. We're going to do something different here. And that doesn't, you know, diminish your value doing kingdom work we're going to do something else. I'm going to use you in a new way. And that's completely okay. 
you know, embracing the idea of counseling and going back to school. You know, one of the things I need to preface with that, this whole concept of what ministry would look like through counseling, I was reflecting on kind of my own journey, what that looked like, what counseling would look like in the future. Um, And I was examining all of this through the lens of clergy and how this, how this can be impactful for clergy. Because when my marriage dissolved, Dr. Gardner, I tell you, just immediately, I, I don't even know, I don't know if I know terms strong enough to uh, describe how efficiently and quickly and protectively he came in to offer me aid in whatever capacity he could. And that, uh, that came through counseling, you know, and one of the things that I learned, like on a district level, at least within my context and my experiences for, you know, issues pertaining to kind of the post trauma event, the district, you know, did a wonderful job taking care of me. And that was phenomenal. But then my brain began to think about what can be done or is in place for preventative care for pastors, you know, because for better or for worse, or, you know, I don't have data to support it either way, but I think there's this implied, maybe self-assumed pressure to maintain this stoicism and I've got it together. Things are going to be okay. And, and to just keep on, you know, carry on and just keep pressing on and you know and I have you know colleagues and peers and things like that you know that share with and things like that but I mean the reality is you can have people that join in on the struggle but you know if you're not talking to the right people you you might be getting support Mm -hmm. but you may not be getting things that are going to aid in resolve or emotional welfare through what is potentially going to be a traumatic thing. You know, in ministry, if we disclose certain things by, by virtue of kind of the framing, you know, I may have to fall on my sword and deal with consequences that I may not think are fair, but it's just kind of the nature of what is. Right. You know, this idea began to develop of, you know, what if clergy had a preventative outlet before all the red flags have gone off and before the trauma is taking place some level, you know, to say, Hey, there's an elder on the district. Who's also a licensed professional counselor that can be a resource that hopefully, you know, when, when a pastor or their family identifies some of the red flags, preventative care can be sought out with confidentiality and the privacy of it that maybe a marriage wouldn't implode and, you know, and have all the consequences and the fallout from that. Right. One of the things that, you know, I know the Lord has laid on my heart to use counseling in that way as a ministry to clergy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I don't know what that looks like, but I would just love to be able to be a resource for clergy and their families so that preventative care can be found and hopefully avoid some of the things that I went through. Right. Yeah. We have a client for our cleaning company who's a psychologist. And so, and we do her office 
we clean it personally because files and all that kind of stuff, you know. And she's made the comment, this is back in 2018, because we had several major losses in 2018. And she made the comment to my husband at that time. She's like, you know, you, you guys have to be real careful because of what you do, you know, being clergy, that you're vulnerable to PTSD and to trauma, which I think I always knew, but was one thing when you, ha- when you heard a professional say it out loud to you, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you're like, oh yeah. And it made me think of this idea of, well, you know, most of us who are, who are clergy are bivocational. Um, you know, our churches have very little money. How do we, how do you even pay for counseling? Like some of those kind of things or in, and then the idea that you touched on already of, okay, what about the people, the way people look at you or view it, the judgmental aspect of, oh, oh, you need to see, you're, you're seeing a counselor. Um, what's, you know, what's wrong? You know, the assumption is automatically, well, you're either suicidal or you're, you know, somebody had an affair or you don't love right. Jesus anymore. Right. right. Like those are all the big ones. Like why else would you go to counseling? You don't love Jesus. You're suicidal or somebody had an affair. There's no other reason, you know, the reality is of we live in a time where no other time before it used to be, even when I'm, I think about 30 years ago, even when my kids were little, right? If I got up and turned on the news, you're going to see the weather guy. You might hear about a car accident that happened. Now you turn on the news and at any given moment, there's breaking news of something traumatic that's happened somewhere on the globe. And so you're just constantly bombarded. And then, you, and then on top of it, you're in a profession where the next phone call is somebody is getting a divorce or somebody did have an affair or somebody did die or, you know, somebody just got diagnosed with cancer. Um, And so you are constantly being bombarded. And like you said, we wait until by the time we realize we need help, it's already too late. By the time we're saying, man, I should probably see a counselor. We have crossed over the line when we should have been seeing a counselor probably three months, four months, six months before that. Right. Yeah. And I, th- I think you, you know, you hit the nail on the head and it's not just uh, in, in the limited exposure I even have thus far. Like you said, a lot of times our presumption is it's massive life trauma that brings people to counseling. And what I'm seeing currently, especially during pandemic and shutdowns and schools being closed and everybody's lives are so disrupted right now. A lot of folks are in counseling right now just because life is hard, Mm -hmm. you know, and trying to juggle so many variables at the same time um, with just such disruption. It's not that there's like, oh my goodness, we need to figure out what this diagnosis is and what is this massive underlying problem. It's just life's hard. Right. You know, and if we're being honest, I think nobody's exempt from the difficulties of life. And at at some point, it just my opinion, and obviously it's a biased opinion, but I think probably everybody needs counseling at some time or another, whether it's a life transition, a junior higher, moving to a new town and going to a new high school, grieving the loss of a parent that you were close to. There's so many things that, you know, we just all experience universally that are just difficult things to navigate. Right. Well, and I think, especially in our society, 
the majority of people, the only coping strategy they have is numbing. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, which is typically in the form of busyness. So now when you take away your coping strategy of busyness, there's your stuff, right? And you have nothing to, to cover it up with. You have nothing to hide it. You have no way to run from it because you're stuck in your house. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that a lot of times we, we misplace, I'll say, let me back up. A lot of times what we think are coping strategies are just avenues of escapism, right? Where we distract ourselves long enough that we think, you know, okay, now I'm okay. I've binge watched a whole, you know, season on Netflix and didn't even think about my problem for the last six hours, but you also didn't do anything to address your problem. And so, so I think a lot of times we, you know, we mix up um, what we think are, are, are coping mechanisms for really just a distraction to escape the moment. Yeah, that's so true. Talk about how your church helped you through this. So thinking about the ways that your church helped, let's just, can we just take some of those principles maybe and apply them to the body in general? What are ways that the body in general can help and support leadership, church leadership? Yeah. Well, I tell you, and, and obviously the disclaimer of this is <laughs> all unique to my experience at Commerce. Right. Um, I don't, I, I can't say that it happens other places or speak to any other situations similar, but for me, my experience at commerce, um, it created a drastic change in who I was as the pastor of commerce. When I went to commerce, I felt a call to go to commerce. When my marriage ended, the way the church surrounded me I then, not only did I have a call to commerce, but I created a covenant with commerce and and, and it had changed. The relationship completely changed. And I remember one individual telling me, you know, because I still, even I took two weeks off, then got right back in the pulpit um, after, you know, everything had come to light. Two weeks off and went right back in the pulpit and you know, into my brain, it was that <clears throat> still trying to maintain this, this mental toughness, this air of I'm handling it. And I can tell I, you know, I'm not destined for Hollywood because I'm evidently not a good actor because everybody saw completely through that facade. And an individual told me, you know, pastor, you've taken care of us for so many years now, like, you know, let us take care of you. And I remember one of the things that uh, Dr. Gardner told me, um, which was a big deal for me because I wasn't allowing it to take place. I was trying to be tough. And, and what's, what's really bad is in my pursuit to be tough and not project my trauma onto them, I was inadvertently isolating myself and insulating myself from the congregation. And Dr. Gardner, you know, he just gave me a very pointed, I won't even call it a piece of advice. I think it was more of a directive that I needed to hear. He said, John, let your people love you. Because I I wasn't allowing that to happen. I was holding them at arm's length, thinking that I'm protecting them from my problem. And when I allowed that, it was as if they they circled the wagons. And it was like, they, they just 
ushered in this like pastoral protectiveness of if anybody tries to mess with our pastor, you're going to have to get through all of us. It was incredible. It, you know, cause that could, you know, it could have gone a few different ways. <laughs> you know, if I'd been told to pack my bags and hit the road, we don't want to deal with that pastor, you know, we'll call somebody else. And if it had gone a negative way, I mean, who knows where I would be. But they just, I mean, embraced the body of Christ and and really embraced the fact and taught me that, Pastor, you are not exempt from trauma and the hardships of life. You're one of us. You just happen to have a call to ministry. They just, they surrounded me and they protected me when they could have gone a handful of different ways. They decided, you know, to just embrace the journey and um, loved me all the way through it. And that was a major part of my healing process. And it was, it was monumental in my life for them to treat me that way. So. Yeah, it's amazing that love can be so healing, isn't it? Yeah, yep. Like even in school, you know, you kind of hear like when you're the pastor at the church, you're their pastor. And, you know, this idea of maybe you can't really have genuine friendships with your church people because there are just, you know, there are certain things that just need to be maintained and the professionalism of, you know what I mean? And things like that. Just maybe some of those type of stereotypes or implications. Like I had nothing else to lose. <laughs> you know, I was like rock bottom. And it was like, I just discarded anything along the lines of this pastoralness of I'm done with all that. And I invited them into my rawness, into the ugliness, into the just spiritual pit that I was in. Say, you know, when different individuals would check in on me and call me, pastor, how are you doing today? It was, it was to the place where I could just tell them, Hey, I'm doing awful. Like this stinks. <laughs> The freedom that I felt and being able to just be that transparently raw and real and honest with my people, like that, that took us to a depth of pastor parishioner relationship that, that blew my mind that I didn't even know was a possibility. I don't even know what that means in light of our bigger conversation here, other than to say, be friends with more of your people real friends. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think uh, you know, you became a real person and you know, sometimes we think, oh, Jesus, Jesus is great if you've got it all together. Mhm. Mm is Jesus still so great when we don't have it all together? And man, that's I mean, that's really when he shines is when Yeah. When we have to we have to look up to see bottom. You know, that's really when we get to see Jesus be all that he is in our life, you know, yeah. with our yeah, rawness yeah. and our realness. And, and I, I think that it does something for them. Maybe when they, when they recognize that this is bigger, like somehow, somehow in our, in our rawness and in our brokenness, he becomes bigger instead of smaller. Yeah. I don't quite understand how that works, but <laughs> right. Right. So let's talk about self-care for pastors. Yeah. You know, since you've walked through this journey of, you know, counseling for yourself and now you're going through the schooling, now you're doing internship, just talk about some basics that probably every pastor 
no matter where they're at ministry wise, as far as their role, but also just some like some basic things that we really need to be intentional about uh, to keep us from jumping off the cliff. Yeah. You know, I think one of the first things that I would highlight as far as self-care is, is this like, whatever you do for self-care, it needs to remain a choice and not a chore. Otherwise it's not self-care. Yeah. And, and if you're, if your self-care regimen is so regimen that to complete it on that day or once a week or once a month, that it causes you stress to make sure you do your self-care. It's not self-care. You got to find something different. <laughs> Fundamental number one, keep it, keep it a choice and not a chore or it just defeats the purpose. You know, another thing, and we, and we touched on it just a little bit earlier, but identifying what our self-care really is, kind of identifying, is my self-care escapism or is it intentionality of thought? If we just say, you know, my, my brain is just fried. I am tired and weary. It's been a long week. Um, you know, I'm really going to do some self-care today. And then you just binge watch, you know, all the Star Wars movies on Disney Plus, you haven't done anything but distracted yourself and right. done anything to address that exhaustion and weariness and, you know, and just emotional and spiritual fatigue. You've just escaped it for a while. Identifying that, you know, self-care, uh, you know, needs to incorporate type of intentionality of thought that creates space for introspection and reflection and just mm -hmm. mindfulness and grounding yourself to, you know, really kind of work through what brought you to the point that needs you to do some self-care. A lot of times we equate self-care to being those times where we check out to, you know, do stuff that allows us to totally get our minds off of whatever that stress is. And sometimes that is a part of self-care, but a lot of self-care deals with the ability of, of being mindful and confronting the things that brought you to this place. You know, how can I process this? How can I navigate this? And, you know, whether that be through mindfulness or deep breathing or journaling, prayer, meditation, or, you know, taking a walk or going on a hike. I think a big component of self-care is that, you know, we always think it has to be something fun and enjoyable. Um, but it also, and, and that can be a piece of it, but it really needs to advance our emotional welfare. Yeah, that's, oh, that's good. One of my self-care is running, which is a new, newer thing. I mean, in the last year and a half, but I don't want to say the running is not it's not, it's not a numbing or distractive because I try to be mindful when I'm running, but yeah. then when I'm doing my cool down is when, okay, now that I've physically exerted myself, I feel like, okay, now I'm in a, since I tend to be more anxious than to be depressed. <laughs> well, depending on the day, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, so then I can use the cool down to start thinking through addressing some of the things that that I'm bumping up against and what's practical, you know, I can pray prayerfully consider them, but then also, okay, what's some practical things that I'm going to take to address 
to address them, et cetera, et cetera. But then I do have, there are some days where I say, you know what, today I'm just getting on Netflix, <laughs> but right. not always yeah, a bad And we just have to define those moments yeah. Yeah. and say today, yeah, because I tell you, I'm, I'm a big, you know, proponent of Netflix binging. I think it's wonderful. Right. Just defining what exactly is this moment? Because <laughs> sometimes we do need those moments to just allow our brains to slow down and turn off and be distracted. And that's completely okay. Yeah. Well, that was my Sunday after our non-celebration, our non-tenure celebration. Sure. <laughs> when we got home Sunday night, I'm like, yeah, I'm just getting on Netflix and putting my headphones on. Just leave me alone. That's good. Okay. So I share one of mine. What's one of your self-care things that helps you? One of my things that, you know, helps me and, and it's nice because I don't mind doing it, whether it's hot or cold outside or whatever the weather may be. But for me, it, it's it's getting outside, removing myself away from just the noise, TV and phones and cars and getting in the woods. I go hiking as I'm walking, you know, a lot of times I'll just find a nice spot to sit down and lean up against the tree and I'll just sit. And for me with that self-care, you know, sometimes I ingest the self-care. It can be reflective, need to slow down, examine, think about the things of the week, you know, like when this person said that to me, I noticed that I got defensive pretty quick. Why did I get defensive, you know, and recognizing, you know, defensiveness is always a secondary emotion to something that's actually been triggered, you know? Okay. So I was defensive. So, okay. Actually I was embarrassed because they said that and it, you know, confront some of those things. Um, you know, sometimes it looks like that. Sometimes it just looks like sitting still and just being mindful and focusing on that, that deep breathing and just enjoying the Lord's creation and just sitting there and just being quiet. You know, I don't think we're quiet. It takes on many forms, but uh, it all is rooted in just getting out, getting in the woods and just being by myself. Have you read that book, Last Child in the Woods? I have not. I just, I only read a little bit of it. That It's that whole idea of getting our kids out in nature. Mm -hmm. because it brings it's a natural it's like almost like a natural sedative in the sense and sedative in, in the sense of it's calming um, yeah. and, and allows them to tranquil yeah allows them to kind of return to that playful that playfulness you know yeah. that we, that at some point we lose when we become adults and everything is so serious you know yeah for sure yeah like i like i should talk i mean everything is serious for me but <laughs> I try, I'm trying to learn in the second half of life to lighten up a little bit and laugh at myself more. So normally I say, what do you say to people who think they have a call to ministry? But I want to change it. Uh, talk to the person who is sensing um, a transition to a different type of ministry, maybe out of that lead pastoral role of advice you might have for them or whatever, words of wisdom. Oh, boy. I should have given you that question ahead of time. Yeah, no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. I guess one of the things that I would offer is it's okay to be afraid of that because that transition is is huge. 
you know, don't be afraid of wrestling with it. You know, I guess there's some interesting elements to it because, because for me, you know, pursuing and being ordained as an elder and identifying and claiming that call to preach, you know, I really had to wrestle with the fact, well, if I do counseling, does that mean I don't have a call to preach anymore? Right. Uh, because I, you know, I didn't sense that either. Well, I called you to preach, but, you know, I didn't give you, you know, the schedule that had to be every week, you know, identifying the capacity with which, you know, my call to preach is now expressed, you know, now that I'm, I'm serving with Mike Hefner at Highland and uh, having a great time with that, you know, and I get to preach in a couple weeks, um, you know, and I'm thrilled to do so. Um, and I think, you know, that allows me to still live into that call to preach. And just because I'm pursuing ministry through counseling now, you know, it doesn't negate the call that God has placed on your life. And I think too, you know, part of it is really with a lot, a lot of intentionality in trying to tune into the Holy Spirit and tune out a lot of the other voices. A lot of people feel they have a pretty good framework on what your call looks like, <laughs> right? What it should look like, um, and especially when it's something that may not be within, you know, it may not be within the designated areas of ministry that we consider. Like, are you getting a counseling degree? Well, that's not in the ministry. That's not in the religion department at all. But for the person that's, you know, wrestling with you know, have a, have a different idea of what my ministry is going to look like, embrace that, tune into the Holy Spirit and tune into the Lord's leading on that. Be respectful and tell your friends and peers that, you know, you appreciate their input, but I'm still going to do what the Lord wants me to do. <laughs> uh, even if that's, uh, doesn't really fall in with what's typical standard or expected. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of expectations placed on Jesus and he kind of, did <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> he's, he definitely left us a good example on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's good advice. So, and you shared a lot of good stuff. This is going to be a great <laughs> episode and you get to kick off 2021. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, <laughs> I was happy to be invited and uh, happy to be a part. So. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. I'll talk to you later. Yep. Have a good night.